Okay, so it's a question that I think all of us have asked at some point or another. What would you do with a million dollars? Um, travel. Visit lots of different places. I would open a restaurant. Savings, pay off major debt, pay off my mortgage. I would invest it. Um, I think I would buy a cabin overlooking the mountains in Colorado or Wyoming. No clue. I would stop working. Put a bunch yeah. in my bank account. Maybe give a little to my family because my parents need it. And then probably just keep doing what I'm doing. What about you, Lachlan? What about me? What would you do if you had a million dollars? I don't know how much it would cost exactly because I haven't priced it out, but I I would be highly interested in someone rubbing my feet while I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's free. Well, okay. Will you do it? <laughs> you know what? Your feet, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. But uh, seriously, on a more serious note, M- McDonald's has that McRib sandwich. I'd probably get some of those. You're terrible with money. Well, you're terrible with not knowing how awesome those sandwiches are. (laughs) You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lachlan Coffey. Every episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community. Today's episode is where the gospel meets wealth. Which honestly sounds a bit weird. Like, sounds like this episode is going to be about prosperity gospel. You know that, let's name it, let's claim it. (laughs) No, no. This is not about the prosperity gospel. But let's face it, we as a people are enamored with folks who are extremely wealthy. So I just wanted to know, what is life really like when you have financial abundance? And so we are about to pull back the curtain on the lives of Christian multi-millionaires. They eat yogurt like us. They drink Snapple like us. They walk around Target like us. I cannot wait. I want to see what this looks like. Um, But I am thinking that we probably should change the names of the people just to protect their identity. I totally agree. So we're going to do that. And welcome to our corner of the urban universe. So according to CNN, in the year 2016, Americans spent $80 billion on lottery tickets. That is so many McRib sandwiches. (laughs) But the point is, we are obsessed with this idea of having more money. Which is weird because we all know that money doesn't buy happiness and that getting rich is not the goal in life. Well, maybe so. But a recent study from Pew Research asked folks this question. What is essential in your view of the American dream? And the lowest answer was wealth. Only 11% said outright wealth was essential, but the top three answers were freedom and choice on how to live, having a good family life, and being able to retire comfortably. And what do you need to have all three of those things? A genie in a bottle, to quote Christina Aguilera. I'm just kidding. Uh, You need money, Jesse. You need money for those three things. Yeah, that's right. You know, in high school, someone used to tell me that money doesn't give you happiness, but money gives you options. And options give you happiness. Yeah, so what you're saying is, even though most people don't outright say they need more money, it's almost inseparable from our view of the good life. Right. And this desire for more money, it's not just an American thing, and it's not new. So in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, Jesus is surrounded by thousands of people. He's in the middle of teaching his disciples when someone in the crowd shouts, Teacher, order my brother to give me a fair share of the family inheritance. Which he's appealing to Jesus' sense of justice, right? I mean, we're not told the context of what's happening exactly between this man and his brother, but he knows enough about Jesus to know 
Jesus is going to do right by me. Yeah, but in his typical fashion, Jesus answers the man with a parable. And the parable starts out like this. The farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? Which is a fundamental question, right? That's part of being a good steward. You have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with what I have been given? And in fact, it's the exact same question that a guy, um, let's just call him Tony Hauser, a guy named Tony Hauser had. So Tony was actually not wealthy. In fact, he grew up in a very modest home. Lived in a little ranch house. So I used to think people that had an upstairs, wow, they've got a house with an upstairs. I remember going to Burger King, maybe a, wow, we're going out to eat kind of thing. But we were never, I never thought of myself as poor. So Tony's family wasn't poor, but they also knew money was a limited commodity. My dad's advice is that if you don't remember anything I teach you, remember these three things, save, save, save. And so Tony took his dad's advice to heart, and that's exactly what he did. Right out of college, I worked for a company. I did get a job. I remembered uh, it paid about 17000 which I thought, wow, this is a ton of money. And uh, it was a white-collar job. It was in a marketing position. It was a pretty large company, and uh, but there's opportunity for growth. Eventually, Tony worked his way to a low-level management position in the company. And by this time, uh, he also had a wife and kids. They were a typical working, middle-class family. Life was comfortable enough, but they still had to watch the budget. Going out to eat, it's... I'll order water because that's cheaper than ordering a soft drink or whatnot with my meal. Hold on, Jesse. I thought you said this episode was going to be about millionaires. Six, seven figures. I I don't want to hear stories about water. (laughs) I want to hear stories about the good life, like this guy's drinking Dom Perignon or or unicorn blood on ice or something. You know, Tony (laughs) just sounds like an average guy. Well, Tony was an average guy. That is until his father-in-law passed away. My father-in-law grew up in a very humble situation, a dishwasher as a young kid and put himself through school and, and just was a hard worker, smart. In fact, by the end of his life, Tony's father-in-law actually had done extremely well for himself. Uh, he'd become very successful at his work. And Tony had had a good relationship with his father-in-law. I mean, he knew him well. And he knew that his father-in-law had been successful. I remember we were called into the accountant's office. They were just kind of laying out, well, here's kind of the plan of his his will and, and how things would be turned over and so forth. So the accountant starts going over what Tony's father-in-law had left to him and his wife. But really at this point, Tony's mainly just grieving the loss of his father-in-law. I mean, his wife is grieving the loss of her dad. Like, they aren't thinking about the money. And if they are thinking about money, they're actually thinking about what was going on at Tony's job at the time. My company, at the same time that all this was going on, they were laying off a third of the department that I worked in. So while Tony's grieving, there's also this looming fear in the back of his mind that at any day, his job might be gone. Man, what a tough season. Worrying about providing for your family while also losing a member of your family. I I feel for this guy. Yeah, like with everything going on, his mind is in so many different places at once. And so there he is. He's in the accountant's office. The accountant starts going through the will. Okay, this is probably what you can expect when it's all said and done. And then eventually he tells Tony and his wife a specific dollar amount. And Tony can't believe it. And I thought, 
you know, that is crazy. That one year is more than I would had thought I would make in a lifetime. In a matter of seconds, Tony was suddenly receiving an incredible amount of money. Wait, there were like bags of cash with a dollar sign on it sitting on the guy's desk that he just handed it over to him? Well, no. I mean, the money would be dished out in yearly increments. But like, did you hear what he said? The amount of money that he would be given each year was more than he expected to make over his lifetime. So let me ask you, how much money do you think you would make over your entire life? Rough figure. I hate mathematical questions. I don't know. A couple million? Okay, well, let me say this. Now imagine getting that amount of money every single year. I like what you're saying. It just was like winning the lottery. Which was exciting. This opened up a whole new set of possibilities for Tony and his family. Wow. I mean, do we keep working? What, you know, And I did have a tendency to work probably later than I should have in the office and that kind of thing. And I remember my wife's like, now you don't have to you know, work such long hours. But here's the thing. This wealth didn't just come with new possibilities. It came with a whole new set of questions. I mean, it was exciting, but it was kind of humbling, too, and a little nerve-wracking, like, now what do I do? Coming up, a Mercedes, a food bank, and the Bible's 2,000 verses on money. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Holly from Denver, Colorado. I made an impact on people's view of wealth by serving for a year with Love Thy Neighborhood. To experience your social justice internship and Christian community, Visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lachlan Coffey. Today's episode is where the gospel meets wealth. So Tony was an average guy. He got an incredible amount of inheritance from his father-in-law. So what is he going to do with it all? Well, so one of the first things that Tony did actually was quit his job. One, because he no longer needed the income. But the bigger reason was actually, remember, they were laying folks off from his department. And I remember thinking, they're doing it by headcount. And if I stay, that means somebody else is going to lose their job. What a nice guy. Looking out for us non-wealthy folks who still have to go to work and stuff. Well, and being able to quit your job is like a lot of people's like ultimate fantasy. We would have so much free time and do whatever we want. But for Tony, while the wealth increased possibilities, I mean, it also increased his problems. And one of those problems had to do with raising his kids. They, they could have a private education if they wanted to. They could have, um, if they were involved in sports or if they're involved in some kind of extracurricular activity, it wasn't like, oh, it's not in the budget, we can't do it. But then it's that, well, you also... When do you say no to some of these things? So one of the reasons that I wanted to do this episode is because I read a book called David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're using Malcolm Gladwell in this episode? I heard that he's not the most scientific guy. Well, here's the deal. Yeah, there's some controversy around him. But I think that on this one, actually, I think that he's on to something and I think it's worth us talking about. In this book, he talks about what he calls the inverted U-curve. Basically, there comes a point at which gaining more of something no longer makes things better, but can actually make things worse. So essentially, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Like, I love mashed potatoes, but I don't want a bathtub full of them. You know, like, ain't nobody want a tub of taters. You no, know? nobody wants a tub of taters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gladwell takes this idea and he connects it actually to how money relates to parenting. 
So a parent who makes insufficient income will struggle to provide basic needs for their kids so that their kids can live normal lives. But on the flip side, a parent who makes an excessive income will also struggle to raise their kids in a normal, well-adjusted manner. And that was a reality that Tony was starting to realize. I don't like kids have this expectation like, well, we can afford it, let's do it kind of deal. And and I want them to appreciate it. And growing up, I can remember appreciating a board game that I bought with the money I earned cutting grass or, or whatever it was. And, you know, not having it causes you to appreciate more. And part of me, I fear that my kids may, I'm robbing that opportunity from them that they can really save or, wow, I finally got this thing that I've always wanted. And here's the thing. It turns out that parenting isn't the only struggle that comes with having more finances. Uh, But before we talk about other struggles with wealth, I'd like to introduce you to a man named Stephen. What's the subject? We're going to talk about your money. Well, I got plenty of it, so (laughs) that works out. (laughs) Okay, so this is Stephen Williamson. Stephen is from a family of very successful businessmen. His father built his own company, which Stephen now runs. And so for him... Being wealthy has always been in the picture. He grew up with it. So unlike Tony's case, in which there was like a clear, distinct moment of going from average to wealthy, that's something that Stephen has never experienced. So I asked him if there ever was a moment for him in which he realized, oh, wow, like we are wealthy. Somewhere in the 80s, probably, we met up in a parking lot and my dad bought a used diesel huge Mercedes but it was a big deal like I now own a used diesel Mercedes and for Stephen like this was the defining moment Mercedes equals wealth we have arrived we have uh, gone over the edge of just kind of making it we've we've achieved wealth I love the language he uses there we have arrived Because I think so often we think about money like it's a destination. There's a dollar amount that if I could just get to that dollar amount, all of a sudden life is going to go great. Well, and for Stephen, like his family had reached that destination. He was where he dreamed of being, but it actually didn't mean life went great. It's a lot of stuff you got to do. You just got to do a lot of stuff that's not fun stuff. So it turns out that managing large sums of money, it just required a lot of work. Like, even if you are able to quit your job, there's still plenty that needs to get done. You know, you have to have attorneys and accountants always paying attention. Because you can, by mistake, do terrible, bad things. It can cost you a lot of money. and So you have to have all that infrastructure, those systems, and then investment people and all that stuff. And even if you get all these parameters in place, you can still do things wrong, which Stephen found out for himself. I remember early on working for my father and his company and... I started getting a larger income as he was starting to kind of let me take over more things. And Stephen knew, as we all do, that making a larger income means you pay more taxes. And my tax situation is complex, but it had just started getting complex. And I remember having to pay way more taxes than I was able to. I just felt confused by the whole thing. It wasn't like, oh man, I just bought this Porsche. It wasn't that, it was like, why did I make this mistake, you know? And I remember having to ask for money. And it was super embarrassing. But managing money and taxes and even navigating parenting aren't the only problems that arise with excessive wealth. According to Stephen, there's also relational problems. 
if I were to say, what's your biggest issue with having wealth? I would say it's people viewing me as having wealth and that's my actual identity and purpose for their relationship with me. And if it was gone, people who would, good people, who would say, no, 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 I like you for your personality or would have a hard time finding space to be with me. And inside the church, it's just like exemplified, like it's like magnified. And the reason is because churches are always needing money. People in churches are always fundraising for mission trips or new building projects or additional staff needs. And if you have wealth, you're going to hear from these folks, but you won't hear from them any other time. It's only when they need money. I mean, I can even be guilty of this. You know, I lead a nonprofit organization and there are times where folks only hear from me when I'm reaching out to them for financial support. Which shows something about the nature of the relationship. I mean, I only want to know you because of what I can get out of you. And Stephen said one of the most obvious ways this comes out is when he'll cover a tab and people simply won't pay him back. How many times does this happen where I don't pay this person back before we look back and go, we're $1,000 in. I never paid him back. I pay everybody else back, but I never paid him back. Why? Because he can afford it. Like, when you start to talk about the narrative of what that's creating, you'd just be annoyed that you're out of this money. But I would never get annoyed that I'm out money. I would get annoyed that it doesn't matter to you. So Lachlan, this was actually something that came up in every single interview we did. Every wealthy person we talked to expressed the difficulty of knowing who your friends are and the real hindrance that wealth creates to having meaningful relationships with folks, including this woman. I, I think it was a, a bit of a differentiator in good ways and bad, I guess. So this is Veronica Smith. And like Stephen, Veronica also grew up wealthy. In fact, her father actually works for a well-known company. And I can honestly say with 100% confidence that every single one of our listeners has used the products of his company. And so while Veronica grew up enjoying the benefits wealth can bring, she also experienced the isolation of wealth. She remembers being teased in middle school because of her family's financial status. Spoiled rich girl, those kind of things. You know, and I'd go talk to my dad about it, and he always would challenge me, like, show them different. You know, if they're going to say that stuff, show them different. And Veronica did her best to show them different. In fact, her and her family were very responsible with their wealth. But deep down, what Veronica really wanted was just to fit in with everybody else. I just wanted to be normal. And Veronica thought maybe it would be easier to blend in and be normal as she got older. But once she became an adult, Veronica learned something that most of us already know, that those of us who don't have wealth, we love to judge those that do. And we think we know exactly what they should and should not be doing with their wealth. Sometimes there's this perspective on wealth in Christianity that like, if you don't give to only gospel-centered things, like you are not using your wealth in the right way. And, and it's so black and white sometimes, and I think there's so much gray. Okay, so let, let me give you an example of what she means. So Veronica works for an organization that acts as a support system for area nonprofits. And most of these nonprofits are not Christian-based, including the local food bank. And the food bank decided to stop giving food to a ministry because the ministry would only distribute the food if people attended their Bible study first. Well, the food bank just wanted to feed hungry people with no strings attached, which is actually something Veronica agrees with. 
Like if I look in the Bible as to what I feel called to, it's like feeding the hungry, like take care of orphans and widows, like just go do that, like step into that stuff. And, you know, that relational component of your faith is what shines through. The bottom line is this relationships are more important to Veronica than money. And the reason is because Veronica has actually witnessed a lot of suffering firsthand. One of my family members has a a chronic illness. And so, like, we had a lot of life-death situations, like, growing up. Um, And I still see her struggle with it today. But Veronica also knows that though she wants to help people as best as she can, there are some things that money just can't fix. Seeing her struggle, if we could pay for her to be well, we would in a heartbeat, no questions asked. But, like, money money doesn't provide everything, you know. You can't pay to fix everything. And I, I can't help but think that, like, that kind of experience makes that money not as valuable. And one of the other things that money can't fix is the need for community. And Veronica wishes she just knew more folks that she could relate to. But the truth is, sometimes wealthy is a lonely place to be. Yeah, there's not a lot of people that you can talk to about this. And I think if there's other people that are wealthy in Christian community, I don't know it. I mean, it's not something you talk about all the time. When you're wealthy, of course, you need to have friends who aren't. But the reality is you can't talk about your wealth problems when your friends are talking about struggling to pay the mortgage. So as a wealthy person, you know, where do you go? And, you know, the Bible talks about money quite a bit, I mean, more than 2,000 times. And many of these verses are warnings against the dangers of it. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The book of James tells the rich to weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on them. What I'm thinking of is in Ecclesiastes, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Yeah, God wants us to be aware of the seductive power of wealth. So again, here's Stephen. Me and the Lord probably talk about this more than he wants to talk about it. I spend tons of energy saying, Lord, help me to understand what it looks like to have a healthy relationship with money. I heard this one time, and I think think this is true. Show me your credit card statement, and I'll show you what you love. And I think that we can follow our money And our money shows us what we really adore in life. What you're talking about is a correlation between greed and also irresponsibility of the way you're handling your money. And sometimes I think I think those things are in parallel with each other. I think if you can recognize that I'm not very good with my money, I I would actually wonder if you have more greed in your life than what you think. It's not necessarily that it could be that you're just not wise with your money. But a lot of times I think it's actually because you're you're greedy in the sense of you. As soon as you get it, you use it on something. And I feel like that's kind of a window into greed. Where are we spending our money? And I don't think that we as middle class folks are the only ones that are struggling with this issue. You know, so I asked Stephen what it's like for him as a wealthy person to read the Bible's verses on wealth. I write them down. I'm going to say the top 20 verses on wealth as per Google. And I think about them and I contemplate them and I go, you know, let's distill them down. It's super hard for Christians to be wealthy. Deal. It's super hard for wealthy people to become Christians. Correct. You have a heavy burden. Much has been given to you. Much is expected of you. Yes. And the poor will always be with us. And I just 
distill it all down to every day, wake up and ask the Lord to help you because you are always in danger of relying on wealth. And it isn't just relying on wealth that you have to wrestle with. For Veronica, it's also a matter of justice. I think a lot of times I'm kind of like, why me? You know, why, why are we able to have so much and then there's so little over here? When I was talking with Veronica, she recalled a day when she was at the grocery store shopping and she was struck by this inequality. And I was walking behind this woman and I had a ton of stuff in my cart. And this lady was pulling things off the shelf, looking at the price, putting it back. I was just curious because she had like peanut butter and bread. You could just tell that something was going on. And so I just asked her, like, do you need help? Like, is there something I can help you with? And she had $5 for food. Like, she was my age, and she had $5. Jesse, I see what you're doing here. You're sanding down the glitz and the glamour here of wealth. I'm just wanting to talk about the Kardashians more, if that's possible. Uh, I mean, these guys are wrestling with some really tough stuff. I mean, I had no idea life as a wealthy person was like this. Yeah, and the point isn't so that we can all have pity on the wealthy folks. But for those of us who aspire to do well and be financially successful, or even those of us who just dream about it, I, I just don't think that we really understand the life that comes with abundant finances. And I know for me, when I'm struggling through something or things are hard, I have people around me that I talk to, you know, whether it's career ambitions, trying to figure out what I want to do in life or family struggles. There's people around me that I talk to. But with all the relational problems that these people have talked about, I, I guess I'm left wondering, where are these people going for help? Like they all have talked about God. I'm not discounting their relationship with the Lord, but God made us to be relational with one another. And it sounds like these folks are just out there fighting the wealth battle all alone. That's a great question. And to answer that, we're actually going to need to go back to the 80s. Stay with us. On this episode of the Love That Neighborhood podcast, we're talking about where the gospel meets wealth. But you really can't talk about wealth without talking about the problem of greed. And the only way that we're ever going to be able to address the problem of greed is through self-awareness. Where are we going to get this self-awareness? Well, check out our other podcast. Love That Neighborhood presents the Enneacast. In particular, make sure to check out episode number five, where we talk about the problem of greed. And not just financial greed, we talk about the root, which is relational greed. I can figure this out. Because if you don't have anybody else to depend on, then the only person you can really depend on is yourself. Mike, are you an Office fan? I am an Office fan. I just because... chose Dwight because he hates people. <laughs> so. <laughs> so subscribe to Love That Neighborhood Presents the Enneacast, wherever it is that you subscribe to podcasts. Or head over to our website at lovethatneighborhood.org slash Enneacast. Welcome back to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lachlan Coffey. Today's episode is where the gospel meets wealth. So we've heard the stories from Tony and Stephen and Veronica, but Jesse, where do they go to get help when navigating all this wealth stuff? Well, the answer is a little different for each of them. Uh, so for Tony, who had absolutely no experience in managing large sums of money, he got connected with a company called Ronald Blue Trust. So Ronald Blue Trust is a nationwide trust to help clients make wise financial decisions. 
This is Michael Graber. He's a private wealth advisor with Ronald Blue Trust. And Ronald Blue isn't just for wealthy folks. Uh, they'll actually work with anybody from any financial situation. With money and with wealth comes different types of, of complexity. So we understand that people in each one of these different situations would have a, a different type of, of need. But some needs are universal, like the need to constantly be reminded what money is and what money isn't. Money, I would say that the purpose of money really is it's a tool for a specific purpose. So money, many people think that money is, is a status symbol or it's a measure of their, of their worth. And so we would say that God does not judge us by the money that we have. Okay, so like Michael went on to say some like really, really wonderful, helpful, clarifying stuff. The problem is that we don't have any of it. Wait, wait, wait. Technology is like wonderful and terrible sometimes. And for reasons we don't understand, the last 10 minutes of his interview, like completely got erased. Like erased on his computer, erased on our computer, erased from the server. We have no idea what happened. Uh, so to help recollect exactly what was in those last 10 minutes, Lachlan, I've actually asked producer Rachel Zabo to come sit with us for just a second. Okay. Hey, Rach. Hey. Okay, so you listened to the interview, and in this interview, you know, there's this moment where, like, Michael starts talking about the special services that he offers to a lot of his clients that is more than just like spreadsheets and just good counsel. Like he kind of takes this interesting, unique approach at the end. Like, tell me something about that. So Michael will sit down with a client and you know, this client will be struggling with some issue regarding their finances. And so they'll talk through it. Okay, whatever, that's good. And then Michael will go sit down with like his next client. And it might so happen that that client is also struggling with the things this previous client was also struggling with. And so what Michael will do is he'll be like, hey, I was just talking with so-and-so about this very same issue. Why don't you guys get together and you guys can talk about it? Oh, so he like pairs them up like in friendship with one another. Yeah. So he's creating like these little pockets of community for folks who are having certain financial struggles that they don't have anywhere else to go to talk about. Man, that just seems like so important because that's like one of the things that keeps coming up is people saying like, I need other people to talk to about this stuff because, you know, it's hard to find people that relate to my situation. And so, man, I, I could see where like this would be really, really helpful for folks. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Rach. That's super helpful. Yep, no problem. Okay, so, but an organization like Ronald Blue isn't the only thing that can help us stay grounded when it comes to money. So one thing that has really helped Stephen is actually something from all the way back in his teenage years. So when Stephen was a teenager, my favorite movie of all time came out. Do you know what my favorite movie of all time is? Is it Simon Birch? I love that movie. I'm obsessed with Simon Birch. You know that line where he's like, I'm sorry! I'm sorry! No, and please stop guessing. Uh, the greatest movie of all time is where Michael J. Fox goes back in time to save his family. Back, back to, to the, the future. future. There's two things that matter in that movie to me. I mean, you. what matters to you is probably the DeLorean and going back in time. But I saw the first scene where there's the speakers and the guitar and the pick. And he just plays like one note, blows up everything. Like, awesome. And then what does he do? First he cusses, which is crazy, because that's what every 80s movie did. And then he jumps on a skateboard. So that guitar and the skateboard had Steven like hooked. 
And he decided like that is what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to play guitar and he wanted to skateboard, which back in the 80s was synonymous with one thing, punk rock. I spent a lot of time with kind of punk rock kids and they didn't have much money and they lived in the basement of their house. And I think everyone, I mean, I can't remember a household that wasn't broken. Like I think through like, was anyone married in any of these kids' homes? That's how it felt. Not surprisingly, the punk rock environment was really different from the environment that Steven grew up in. But back then it was like, that was a scene for the marginalized, right? And that was, there's a lot of poverty, a lot of emotional poverty and physical poverty. So spending his days with like all these punk rock kids and being in and out of all of these different punk rock kids' homes and then eventually touring in a punk rock band, like Steven's outlook on wealth, it changed. And not because he simply saw poverty firsthand, but because he had real relationships with these punk rock kids. So it gave great conversations of, you're wealthy, you know, you're better than us maybe, or you think you're better than us and we're poor. It was very easy to talk about. And it was easy to talk about because in punk rock, it's like almost your goal to offend people, right? And so the reality was these punk rockers would be brutally honest. Steven knew what they thought about him, and he knew what they thought about his money. And just being in that punk rock environment has really shaped much of Steven's outlook on wealth and poverty. Like, it's fine to interact with poverty by going, hey, you're poor. Here's a dollar, which you don't really do, but that's the idea. Like, let me give you something. I'm American. Let me fix you. But just going, just be around poverty for a while. Just be here. In fact, Steven is still friends with some of these same guys from his punk rock days. And it's because he finds something in them that, honestly, he he really struggles to find in the church. You know, it's nice to have someone who can outright call you out because they, they don't care. Um Living in the Christian community, in the Christian world, in the church, people are nice. So you don't, have, you don't form a lot of friendships where people don't care to offend you. Like we're always making it our goal not to offend people. We really want to say things that we won't because we're not supposed to. I guess I miss the honesty a lot of, you know, when you're known to have a lot, even if people don't want anything now, they may one day, let's not burn that bridge. And so to have someone that long-term doesn't really care is very refreshing. Man, I and mean, you hear like uh, a cry for honesty and it breaks my heart because you would think that would be assumed in the church and it's not obviously by Stephen's experience. I think it's really important that those of us that are in places where we might need to go to those that have more money, that we're clear about the nature of the relationship. What we don't want to do is we don't don't want to just hang out with folks, and it's a long game where we're just hanging out with them to build a friendship in order to one day try to squeeze some cash out of them. That's that's super manipulative. Yeah, absolutely. It's a challenge. It it takes a lot of self-reflection, I think, on on the non-wealthy Christian's part. To be self-reflective enough to go, to realize, is there hidden motives that I have for engaging with someone like Steven, um, where he or she, like, I just seek their dollar signs behind them. That's how I, that's their identity to me. And we do need to 
reflect on that and be aware of that ourselves. So Tony's got his advisors. Steven has got his punk rock crew. What about Veronica? Let's go back to her. Who does she have? Well, the truth is, this is something that Veronica is still working through. I mean, with all the burden that comes with wealth, so the responsibility, the struggles at times with community, the seduction toward greed, is her wealth even worth the fight? You know, and I I think sometimes I wonder, like, do we need to give it all away? And I think that's, I, I sympathize with that question. You know, if your identity to people in the community is, you know, they see you as the person with wealth. And if it sort of impacts, you know, so many of your relationships, I mean, there would be a great temptation to just let go of the burden. But then here's the other thing. Veronica struggles with that, but then she remembers her wealth is not really for her. Like, even in my job, I find that, like, when I'm, like, just in my office a lot, I start losing a lot of joy in what we do. And then it's like, I got to get out and start seeing the impact of this again or, or meeting the people that, like, we can actually help. So remember, Veronica's job helps support other area nonprofits. And oftentimes we can think of the wealthy being a gift to the poor, that the poor need our help. But Veronica's found that actually it goes both ways, that the poor are really a gift to her. There's a, um, a daycare that we help with, and um, there's this woman that runs it named Miss Rose. Every time I go in there, that woman gives me the longest hug and just, you know, she's excited about what's happening. She wants to show me what's changing in her classrooms. And, and just her joy and her expression, that's a gift to me. So in Luke chapter 12, the man in Jesus' story gains wealth and stores it up for his own use. And then Jesus ends the story with God speaking to the man. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus is saying the purpose of wealth is the same purpose as everything else. Relationships. And so, Lachlan, do you want to know what Tony ended up doing with most of his money? Let me guess. He was determined to give all his money away to the first podcaster he could find who uses King James language in their podcast title. And lo and behold, Love Thy Neighborhood just got its biggest donation. Ever. (laughs) That would be amazing. Uh, But no. He actually pretty much kept the same lifestyle he's always had, minus the job. And I still will clip coupons. I still, okay, should I order tea or just get water with my meal? And actually, he spends a lot of his time each day and a ton of his financial resources to support his friends who are in missions. What profit a man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And it's just You can get wealth, you can have all this money and it's great and whatever, but, you know, if your soul, you know, the the love and the compassion and all that, that you've got the ability to use your wealth for and you don't use it, what a huge waste. If you'd like to learn more about Ronald Blue Trust, you can visit them at ronblue.com. For more resources on this topic or to hear past episodes of this podcast, you can visit our website at lovethyneighborhood.org slash podcast. Sports. 
Special thank you to our interviewees for this episode, Tony Hauser, Stephen Williamson, Veronica Smith, and Michael Graber. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Lachlan Coffey. And our producer, technical director, editor, and very good at Donkey Kong 64 is Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. Apply for your social justice. <laughs> <laughs> Apply for your social justice internship. I did at that time. Now I have it. Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian community by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org. Serve for a summer or year, growing your faith and life skills. Which of these was the neighbor to the man in need, the one who showed mercy? Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Likewise.